good evening. Anyway, so glad to be here, glad to see you all, um, and have time to sing together and come now and open up the Word of God. Um, and we will be briefly in Galatians 5. I mean, that's our sort of foundational passage here that we've been working from uh, as we go through the fruit of the Spirit. And so um, if you have a Bible, turn there if you would, or if you don't have one, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew rack. You're welcome to use those. And if you absolutely don't have your own Bible at all, you're welcome to take one of those Bibles out of the pew racks and just take it home and, and make it yours as well. Um, that's why we have those. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been going over the fruit of the Spirit, and there are nine characteristics that the Spirit of God works in his children and produces in their lives, and we've looked at the first two, who are love and joy, and tonight we're moving on to the third of the nine, which is peace. And that passage of Scripture in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, those two verses are the passage for the fruit of the Spirit. Um, we find peace in, in verse 22. Uh, I'm going to read both those verses for us here tonight as we get started. Uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so I want to start by asking a question. If you think about conversations you've heard in the news, maybe people having on a talk show or in the news, conversations about peace, what are people most often referring to? What is it that people are generally referring to when they talk about peace? World peace. What was the second thing? External peace? Sure. Um, yeah. They're most often referring to, in some form or another, the absence of conflict or the absence of war. If there's not war, then it's peace. Uh, Mary gave the Miss America answer, right? The Miss America contestants, when they are asked, what is the one thing they want? World peace, right? Um, and some of you were around in the 60s and 70s. You know there was a whole lot of peace going on, at least that's what people thought. Uh, there was a whole peace movement, songs about peace, bumper stickers about peace, slogans about peace, hand signs about peace. Um, well, and, and so we come back to the topic of what is that all about? What do people mean by that? Well, they mean no war. Stop all the fighting, no wars, no conflict, everyone getting along. Uh, and in our time, we see we don't really see those 60s bumper stickers anymore unless someone's driving around in a VW bus. Um, but in our time, we can see it on shirts or on even bumper stickers in the form of coexist. Have you seen those coexist stickers? Uh, yeah, so the call to coexist is a call for peace, right? To, to get along with everyone. But what is really expected here is for everyone to say and agree that every opinion, every belief, every standard or lack thereof is equally right and true. And they, they, it's, a, it's really a postmodern ideology where no one is wrong. Everyone has what they call their truth. Uh, and if you say that they're wrong, well, 
you're basically the devil. All right? This... And this is not coexisting. You know, forcing everyone to agree that everyone's thoughts on everything are equally right um, is not coexisting. It's not peace. It's certainly not biblical. So we as Christians should not look at those and think, oh, this is a great thing. Even that coexist sign itself has all these religious symbols in the letters. Right? So the, the, the letters are made up of religious symbols from all kinds of different religi- religious systems. Um. There's also one group that will always be found to be unwilling to coexist under this definition, and that, that is the Christians. Or at least we should be unwilling to coexist in that sense, that everything is, every belief or thought is right and true. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. So tonight I want to show you that all this peace that we've been talking about is not the kind of peace that Paul is writing about in Galatians 5. Um, here as the, the fruit of the Spirit. That's not to say there's no aspect in which the absence of war, in a sense, in the life of a person is not a biblical reality. We'll kind of talk about that um, because there is some truth to that. Um, we just need to understand how and what the difference is, um, and it is an, an important distinction. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started for tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this time to come together to open your word, uh, Lord, and specifically tonight to talk about the subject of peace, Lord, the, the fruit of the Spirit uh, of peace that you work out in the lives of believers. I pray you would give us understanding about what that is, what it isn't, Lord, that we would benefit from this, from the reading of your word tonight including many of the different scriptures we'll go to. I pray you would open our hearts and our minds to hear and to receive your word, to be encouraged by it, um, uplifted by it. If our thinking, Lord, is wrong or twisted in any way, Lord, we ask that you would straighten it out through your word and through the work of your spirit. We'll give you praise in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So the root of the word that Paul used here in Galatians 5.22 is a verb that means to join or bind together something that has been separated. Uh, the idea here is that is something that used to be together was separated and then is bound together again. The thing becomes one again. Okay, If there is division or dissension, um, that is the opposite of peace. Okay, So the action of bringing the division to back to oneness is the root of the noun that Paul used here. And here he's talking about the state where things are as they should be. There is a there is harmony. Um, now I mentioned earlier that Paul is not talking about the about coexisting with others or about the absence of war in this passage. But before I get to what he is saying, I want to remind you of something very important. And and there is an ultimate version of peace that is a prerequisite uh, for people to experience the peace that Paul is talking about. Okay, we, we can talk about peace as the fruit of the Spirit all day long, but unless the gospel has done its saving work in a person's life, they will not manifest the fruit of the Spirit in terms of peace. They will not experience that. It is in this sense that we must talk first about war or the concept of being at war or enemies of God. Um, and we must get this before we move on to the fruit of the Spirit. 
What is the reality of the state of every human being? They are essentially at war with God through their sin and rebellion against him, um, against his word, his law. Um, We love darkness rather than light. Scripture tells us that. Scripture teaches us that all mankind is dead in trespasses and sins. We are called sons of disobedience. We are called children of wrath. God says the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man are only evil continually. Um, we love the world rather than God, the, world, the world's ways rather than God's ways. It's the reality of the state of mankind. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that word there, uh, enmity, it means that we are, we are actively opposed to God. We oppose him. We are his enemies. And really, if you go through Old Testament, New Testament, all of Scripture is full of talk about how God deals with his enemies. God's anger is fierce and burns hot. In regard to the city of Nineveh, Nahum writes these and other descriptions about God's dealing with Dealings with his enemies. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And if you bump down to verse 5, it says, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. And down to verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That's pretty severe. This is not peace. When did this division, this description of God's enemies and how he handles that, when did this division or separation from God begin? Genesis with Adam and Eve. Right? In, at least in terms of humanity, that is where it began. Um, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, it plunged the whole world into sin and death. Uh, and that was the beginning of it. What was once good and harmonious, um, a, a good and harmonious relationship between God and his creation, it was divided through sin, and now there is only enmity between men and God. And we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than what Scripture teaches. We have to fight against uh, that worldly, man-centered tendency. We have a tendency to think of ourselves as better than we are or better off than we are or better people than we are. Uh, it's one of the hardest things to convince a person of, right? that, that they are a wretched sinner uh, who deserves hell. This is what the Bible teaches. It's hard to convince people of that. Why is that? Why is it so difficult to convince people of the fact that they are sinful and that it's a horrific thing? Why is that? Denial? Okay. Okay. I think that really gets gets to the point. First of all, they don't think they're as bad as that. Um, they, the problem is they compare uh, or measure themselves against other sinners, 
right? We tend to look at other people and say, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't done those things, so therefore, I'm a good person. Um, But God doesn't give us an option to think other than what the Scripture describes us as. He wants us to know about ourselves and to be convinced and convicted by His Spirit um, so that we'll turn from that life of sin. We'll turn from our sin and turn back to Him um, and to what He offers instead. And we looked at those terrible verses in Nahum, describing God's anger and wrath against his enemies. Um, but right in the middle of that, he says this in Nahum 1.7. says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Right in the middle of all that wrath and vengeance, we see this, this biblical truth about God. The Lord is good. He knows those who take refuge in him. Really, I mean, he describes this great conflict because of sin and our our state as enemies of God, but then he describes a refuge from the wrath of God. And John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, if we take refuge in Christ, we are safe. If we do not, the wrath of God remains on us. And you see, if the wrath remains, that means it was already there. This is very consistent language, and God offers, uh, through the gospel, a way out. If he offers you and me terms of peace. I want to put it that way. We have the fear of death, the fear of the wrath of God, the fear of eternal punishment and hell. These are Terrible, terrible realities. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But he offers ultimate peace. And I want you to see that this ultimate peace is once and for all given to the one who trusts in Christ as Savior. we We are justified by God through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that God... Uh, justly declares a person righteous, not because they did good things, but because Jesus was righteous for them. So what is it? What did Jesus take on himself on the cross that was meant for you and me? We talk about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but what did he take on the cross that was meant for you and me? God's wrath. Absolutely. He bore the wrath of God in our place. The wrath of God against sin that we've been talking about. This whole description of humankind and and our, our state before God. The very thing earned by you and me. That's what we earned is God's wrath. Jesus took it on himself. So God didn't ignore sin. He didn't just let it go unpunished because he felt sorry for us. He poured out his wrath on his only son. If he let sin go unpunished, he would not be a just God. But so that he would be just and the justifier, he laid it all on Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. But we need to see and learn now that this is what it looks like to go from a fearful expectation of the wrath, the wrathful 
raging anger of God pointed right at you and right at me to having peace. There's a reason God tells us the truth about our desperate condition so we can experience true and lasting peace. And this is what we learn from Paul here uh, in Romans 5.1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? We have peace with God. That's the peace that matters. That's the ultimate peace. Romans 5, 10, 11 says, For if while we were enemies, which we already discussed, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We as professing Christians should be comforted by these verses, comforted by this truth. This is the greatest peace a person can possibly have to be reconciled to God. In light of what we talked about, about our sin, there's nothing better than to be reconciled to God. What was divided has been made one. Harmony is restored when a person is saved. This is... And this has been a kind of a long setup, but I wanted you to see that this peace that we've just been talking about, this ultimate peace, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, being right with God. This isn't what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit. It's related for sure. Right? It's, it's nonetheless true, and it is related, but it's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. Um, and like I said, it is the greatest example of peace, but not the same thing as what Paul's talking about. What Paul is stating in our Galatians text is the fruit of peace produced in the lives of those who have that peace with God. All that peace we've just been talking about, the forgiveness of sins, it's those people, those who are in Christ, who now can experience the peace that Paul is talking about as the fruit of the Spirit. Without first responding to the gospel with repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal peace with God, a person will not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and producing this fruit that Paul is talking about. Now, a big mistake people make is not seeing a difference between inner peace and outer peace. Um, you mentioned external peace a little while ago. Um, this is really what Paul is talking about. The Spirit of God is producing the fruit of inner peace within Christians. But let, let's ask the question, what is outer peace? How would you describe that? How would you describe outer peace? It's real, but what is it? Okay, so what would be peaceful external circumstances? Only if, you, only if you've invested in the stock market. <laughs> what else? What is external peace or outer peace? Okay, that can bring about a... Sure, right? 
Okay, we can go back to saying the absence of war or conflict, that's certainly an, an external peace. Is it true that if two countries are fighting and then they stop fighting, there's peace? Yeah. What about the absence of pain and suffering? Is that a form of external peace? And if any of you have gone through a form of suffering, a medical thing or anything like that, and then when it's over with, there is a peace. There's a relief, isn't there? About the absence of adversity or trials of any kind. Right? We could view that as peace. It may be even harder for us to view it as peace unless we just come out of it, which we all kind of go through things. We come out of things through our lives. And certainly when we're in the midst of it, we're looking for peace, and sometimes we don't find it. And once it's over, then we have an external peace. Right? But that's sort of what we're dealing with tonight. How do we as Christians respond to these trials and these difficult things? Yes. That's right. Right. That's right. And ultimately, that's the point. Right? So we go back to Galatians 5. Is Paul talking about outer peace, this peace that we were just talking about? No. And you understand that. He's, fruit of the Spirit is not an outer peace. Um, the Bible doesn't promise us outer peace at all. Yet that's what so many people are taught and some supposedly Christian ministries will teach and promote. And where in the Bible are we promised the absence of conflict or adversity or trials? We're not. Uh, just the opposite is true, as we often point out here at this church. In 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. In Luke 12, 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Okay, this is to be expected for us as Christians. We should, we should understand this and be prepared for this. Um, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter four. And look at verses twelve through sixteen. Again, we'll see some similar language here from Peter, writing to Christians who are suffering. He says, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice." insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay, so don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange that trials are a part of your life. And the fact that it should not be strange to us 
that we would have trials, it reveals to us that we should actually expect them. And we don't even have to look for verses like this that we have to read and then say, so the opposite of that means I should expect them. We can go to the Bible and find passages of Scripture that tell us straight out. And we can see it in Philippians 2 that, that this is a part of the Christian life. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's what God has ordained to be a part of our lives, and he's doing it for a reason. And we read last week from James that, when we were talking about joy, that we should in fact count our trials as joy because God is using them in our lives to make us complete. So the absolutely clear pattern in Scripture uh, is that Christians will and do suffer in life. We're not to expect outer peace at all. Now, will we have periods of time in our life where things outwardly are going pretty well? Sure. That'll, that'll ebb and flow. We'll, we'll have those times. But it's not to be expected. It's, it's a welcome rest, but it's not promised to us and will not last. And the point is, don't place your hope, your joy, and, and expectations in the absence of conflict. Don't think that I can't have these the joy and peace that God says unless I have no conflict. And we keep saying this over and over again. Um, seems like lately, but it just keeps coming up. Um, that, that we can't think of the absence of conflict as the, the go-to for being able to be joyful or be at peace. So what is Paul really saying? The Spirit of God is producing it's inner peace. Okay, so we've talked about outer peace and what that is. Well, what is inner peace? If you had to describe inner peace, what is that? He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What is that? Peace of mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's one commentator put it this way. Tranquility of mind based on the consciousness of a right relation to God. Okay, in that we we can see the connection between the, the peace with God because of the forgiveness of sins and, and the peace the Spirit of God produces in the believer's heart. We talked about that ultimate peace and what that is. We are not no longer enemies of God. And, and we made the, the distinction that this is different, what Paul is talking about, but they are related. And that's what we can see in that definition there, this tranquility of mind based on the consciousness I know I am in right relationship to God because of my Savior, Jesus Christ. That brings a peace of mind. And it's meant to. The fact that we understand that is meant to bring us a peace of mind, right? a tranquility. In fact, without the ongoing trials in life, just like joy, how would we truly know the peace of God? without some hardship, without some opportunity to be tested in this area, how would we know, truly know, the peace of God like this? And that's the point of what Paul is talking about. You have hardships in life, all kinds of persecutions, ongoing sin in your life, sickness, loss, pain, you name it. It is in those times when the fruit of the Spirit is produced, that he's producing in Christians, becomes more evident. Right? It manifests more and more, and that's not, again, we don't flip this around and say, oh, well, therefore, I'm going to go 
sin, do a bunch of sinning, and then God will give me a lot of peace. No. Okay? That's, that's wrong thinking. Right? In a way, yeah. Uh, you know, as we've seen in this study, the fact is the Holy Spirit is doing the producing. This peace that we're talking about is produced by the Holy Spirit. You don't conjure it up. You can't summon it. Uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings these different aspects of his fruit into play in our lives. Okay, we, don't, we don't love God on our own, as many people think. 1 John 4.19, we love because what? He first loved us. Okay, we need the Spirit of God to produce love in us for salvation, and then continue to produce it in us in an ongoing sense toward God and toward other people. Okay? We, don't, we don't have joy on our own. We need the Spirit to produce it in us because we tend toward the opposite. We tend toward anger. We tend toward dissatisfaction. We don't have peace on our own either. These are all from God. They originate with Him. They are given to us for our good and because God uses them in our lives to accomplish his will. Not only his will in your, your own life through your trials and as he produces this fruit in you, but he uses that in other people's lives as they observe your life as well. God is doing all kinds of things. We can't see it all. We'll never know it all. Uh, but he's doing a lot of things. And he wants us to be joyful in the midst of difficulty. So he produces that in us. He brings that about in our lives. He wants us to have peace with him, and he wants us to be at peace in our minds in the midst of difficulty. So he produces that in us as well. So we can see, we start to understand how God has and is equipping the church for life. How he's equipping you and I to live this Christian life in order to function well, and to be able to handle the difficulties of life, God gives us what we need for that. The question for us is, do we pick up and utilize the tools God has given us? Do we agree with God? Do we participate in, in what he's doing in our lives? This brings up other questions. What, what are some of our natural emotional responses to adversity, pain, or hardship, or trials? Just the emotions that come up. What are our emotional reactions, responses? Anxiety? What else? Frustration? I know there's more. And just because you say it doesn't mean you're experiencing it right now. Fear, I heard, okay. Anger. What, complaining, grumbling, those kinds of things. In short, wrong thinking. These are, these are ways of thinking wrongly, responding wrongly emotionally. Um, so then that brings up the next question. When those emotions come, how do we tend to react? How do we respond to those emotions? Where do those emotions take us? What do you think? Yeah.
Oh, oh, you're talking about Moses hitting the rock. Yeah, in anger. Sure. Okay. So he lashed out in anger. So we can we can do that. What else? Think about all those things we talked about. Fear, anxiety, frustration, anger, complaining. What do they cause us to do? Blame. Sure. Blame God. Blame others. What else? It challenges you. Okay. Okay. Right. There you go. You're talking about you're talking about Christian thinking, right? It's not always our response. Like sometimes we have an initial response and then we realize, wait a second. I I need to stop what I'm doing. It's not right. What are some other negative responses? We can try to force things to go a different way. Okay, we, we manipulate people or circumstances. Um, we already talked about Moses lashing out in anger, maybe even vengeance. We, we do that sometimes. Okay. Yeah, I think we talked about that last week too. We do the opposite of what we should. We, maybe we disengage. We pull back from fellowship with Christians. I don't want to be there. They'll say what? Sanding you. Okay. No. <laughs> so some of these, and probably a lot of others, are our sort of natural fleshly reaction when things aren't right. My initial reaction is not always what it should be. Um, and... But our natural fleshly reactions are usually not the right thing. Yeah, again, you're talking about Christian thinking. And it's maybe not our initial response. Sometimes we're better at it than others. But even if it's not our initial response, it's what the Holy Spirit is working in us. And so he brings to our mind, wait a second, my thinking is wrong. Yeah, I, I need to change my thinking. How do we do that? We go to the Word of God. What does God say about this situation? How am I supposed to react to this? So we can have, our in our initial responses, we can have wrong thinking and we can have Wrong acting based on that wrong thinking. Okay, when we were kids and we fell and we scraped our knees, what did mom do? She took out that bottle, dreaded bottle of 
that brown bottle of hydrogen peroxide. I hated that. And I could have sworn when it was put on there, it was actually smoking like acid, right? As it hits that injury. But, you know, mom always says that it had to be done to clean the wound and it would only hurt for a little while, right? And that goes to, somebody said earlier, no pain, no gain. Right? There, are, there are all kinds of wounds or injuries that in order to be cleaned or healed, you know, some pain has to be caused to take, to take care of that, to fix it. Um, but my reaction was, say, just leave it. I don't, I don't need that. I don't want to go through the pain of that. I'd rather it be dirty. Uh, and when, not to get grotesque, but when a human being, a human body has been impaled by some object, you know, the natural reaction is to grab that and pull it out, right? And I'm not talking about splinters. I'm talking about big things. But that is counterproductive. It goes against the truth of what would be a more dangerous outcome, right? You could, you could bleed out and die before you get to a hospital if you pull that thing out of there. So your normal reaction to it, maybe even a pain response is, grab it and pull it out. And this is you know, why paramedics often leave an object in or maybe even tape it, tape it in there so no, it won't come out on, on accident or someone won't pull it out because they need to get this person somewhere where they can be properly treated and so they can be prepared to deal with what may come when they remove that. So in a similar way, our natural reaction to affliction or conflict uh, or emotional pain, etc., is to try and change it, stop it immediately. But if God is in control and has seen fit to bring this suffering, whatever it is, into your life, is it the best thing for you to try and control it or to think wrongly about it? No. We should, we should think, how should I think about this? How should I be responding to this? How can I glorify God in my response to this as a Christian? God is doing what he's doing in your life for a reason. And as again, as we read in James, we need to let it work. Let it do its work. The promise of God is that he, through his spirit, will produce and give you peace about it. Whatever it is, he'll give you peace. Peace in the midst of it. He doesn't say you'll never go through it. He doesn't say he'll take it away. Now, sometimes does a painful event happen and does God take care of it right away? Sure. But if, it, if he doesn't, is he, has he done something wrong? Has he, has he missed something? No. We need to be able to have peace of mind, be able to endure this. So it requires right thinking, understanding God and what, what he may be doing. There's a, there's a tranquility about the Christian who knows and understands this work of the Spirit in their lives. No longer do they need to respond in the ways we talked about earlier, in fear and anxiety. Uh, and again, you, like you said, you learn things over a lot of years, right? Over a lot, through a lot of trials, and that's how we do it. Some of us have been Christians longer than others, and maybe we're more mature. It doesn't, it's not better, it's just you've been through more, you've had more practice at it, and God's had more time in your life to, what did you say, sand, sand away, right? Um, so over time, we learn, I don't need to respond in fear. I don't need to respond in anxiety. Why? Because I know the truth. I have a peace of mind. I can have a peaceful and calm spirit in the midst of whatever this is, this diagnosis or this ailment or loss, whatever it might be. 
So again, the peace that Paul is talking about is not the absence of trouble. It's not the fruit of the Spirit is the absence of trouble. No, that's not what he's talking about. We, we can't misunderstand him here because we're, because we're thinking of peace in a worldly, cultural, natural sense. This is a work of God that is beyond our comprehension. And that's what he promises. What happens? Adversity comes, we respond in fear and anxiety, and then we continue in wrong thinking until we act or respond in a wrong way as well because we're not trusting what God has said. In the heat of the moment, we forget. And maybe some of us snap back to it quicker than others. Maybe some of us need a brother or sister in Christ to say, hey, are you forgetting? Are you forgetting who God is? Why, is it, why do we forget? Why do we forget and then think and respond wrongly? Why is that? Okay, we don't trust the process. Okay, Maybe we haven't learned from our past trials, even though God has proven himself to us. How quickly can we forget? Very quickly. Why else do we forget? Wait, what? Well, okay. In some, yeah, I can see that in some cases, but we ultimately don't want to put our trust in people. They will fail us. And that's the point of this kind of peace is that it, it's only from God. It's not produced by my trust in others, though there are times in life where we are absolutely put in positions where we're forced to trust other people with our lives or our situation, uh, in, a, in a physical sense anyway. Another reason we forget, we think wrongly, we act wrongly, is because we stop growing in our faith. We stop growing in our knowledge of God, of who he is, of what he's done. And the more we know of him and his promises, the more we will respond rightly when adversity comes. This is what the Spirit of God uses to produce fruit in our lives, knowledge of God. Peter knew this when he greeted the Christians with this blessing in 2 Peter 1, 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. So how are grace and peace multiplied to you? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace, both. we're talking about peace right now, but the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord brings about peace. So why would we set the source of knowledge aside and not ever read it or not apply it to our lives? We're sabotaging ourselves. You want more peace in your life? Study the Word of God, understand it, know Him more. Okay, when, when we do this, the Spirit of God teaches us, reminds us of the amazing truths about who God is, what he's done, that as a Christian, you are right with him through Christ. Your sins have been forgiven, not to be counted against you. Then he produces in you a peace that you'll not be able to explain other than it's with God. If you, if you and I want that inner peace produced in our lives, 
we must pursue knowing God. Bringing our prayers to him in affliction and being obedient uh, or, uh, to trusting him through his word. Philippians 4, 7. Says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When is that? When we have fear and anxiety and we bring it to him in prayer and thanksgiving. We entrust that to God, trusting him. And what does he produce out of that? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Right? And he will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You and I will struggle with this at times. But peace can and will return to the wayward Christian through the work of the Holy Spirit. We must learn from this scripture that our hearts and our minds are vulnerable to wavering and wandering from the truth when we, when we pull back from Christian community, when we unplug from his word. We occasionally need our hearts, probably more than occasionally, need our hearts and our minds to be renewed in the truth about Christ Jesus and our security in him. We need our hearts and minds renewed. This brings you and I peace because it's the truth. When you find this anxiety and this fear based on whatever the externals are, you bring it to the Lord in prayer and then trust him. Get back to his word. Remember the truth. Read about the truth. And what is it? That ultimate peace. I have that. My sins are forgiven. I have peace with God. No matter what happens in this world, in this life, I'm at peace with God. If I died five minutes from now, I'm at peace with God. And then allow him to produce that ongoing peace. As you think of those things, as you realize that reality again, then he begins to produce this, this ongoing peace in your life. I can rest in this difficult circumstance. I have peace with God. We can have a quietness about us in him. I don't need to go back to that list of things, of anger and complaining and all these other things. There can be a quietness about me. And it, it encourages not only me, it encourages other Christians as they see my response to the difficulties of life. It draws people who don't know Christ to say, wow, that's amazing. I don't know how you can be like that. Well, it's because of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we can, again, have this quietness about us in him, in Christ. Not because things are going well, but because they're not going well, and we can trust our lives to God. Scripture says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So Paul's call for peace in his, he calls for peace in every one of his letters. In his greetings, all 13 of his letters, and next to asking God for God's grace, and we commonly hear the phrase, grace and peace to you. But next to grace, peace seems to be his favorite word to use as a blessing for his brothers and sisters. And he greets them this way, grace and peace to you. But what does he always anchor that peace to? If you had to guess, what does he anchor that grace and peace to? To the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he greets people in this way, it's a reminder that they need peace of God. It's a reminder that true peace comes from God. And it's a reminder that God offers that peace to his children. He's, he's talking here, Paul's talking here about the fruit of the Spirit, what is divinely produced fruit. Now, we should be aware that there is such a thing as false peace. Okay, that's the reality, there is such a thing as false peace. What would be, you could think of it, what would be the worst example of false peace? I don't know if fake news is on the list. It's not on my list. Okay, that certainly could give a false peace. I wouldn't put that in the category of the worst yet, but maybe part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if the ultimate war or problem is that we are enemies of God, then wouldn't the worst example of false peace be that someone would think they're at peace with God and they're not? How would they know it? Well, hmm? right. Yeah, you can't change his mind. Ultimately, the answer to that question is God would have to convince them whether God does it through the reading of his word or through a, a Christian sharing the truth with them from the word of God, ultimately it's going to be God convincing their heart and their mind of what is true because we can't in ourselves use some magic words to help convince people of something, right? You, you try and you try and you try, and many of you know it. With, if you have relatives that are unbelievers and you've tried, they're, you're not going to convince them. It, it, that is, has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a reality that there is this false peace, this false security. Believing there's another version of that, believing there is no God at all, that life is just chance, you're kind of in the same boat there. Um, but someone thinking they're saved when they're not, I, I, there could be nothing worse than this, to think you are right with God, only to find out when you stand before him that you never were, and, and that God's wrath still abides on you. And it's too late at that point. And Scripture describes that there will be many who will, be, who will find themselves in that, in that position, thinking they had peace with God, all because they had a, a false peace. So why or how could someone come to a place of having false peace? How does that happen? Lack of knowledge? And how were, you, how were you convinced? I mean, that goes to his question. How would you know? How were you convinced? Okay. So the word of God, 
right? I mean, people are already there before coming to faith in Christ. They're already enemies of God. That's the state of everyone before they come to Christ. But this, having this false peace, mainly happens through false beliefs, being raised that way. You have false beliefs about something. False teaching about sin and salvation, whether it's from parents or maybe never never hearing the gospel, never going to church at all, or even worse, uh, through pastors and teachers who claim to be Christian who are telling you you're okay when you're not. Um, Right, right. Yeah, that's in Matthew 7, we see that. Um, And that's... Many people will find themselves in that place. Those, that's not even describing atheists or people who claim no association with God. These are people who think they're okay. But the reason they think they're okay is a list of things they did. Hear God, look how amazing I am, accept me. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. They didn't place their faith in Christ for salvation. Their salvation was based on their own works. And that is a false gospel like you were talking about. Um, And so very, very deadly thing for teachers, pastors, to tell people they're okay when they're not. And just by example, um, the prophet Jeremiah wrote about those terrible kind of leaders who wrongly taught um, God's people. Jeremiah 6, 14 and 15 says, They have... This they talking about these the priests, right? The teachers, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So what's going on here? The priests, the leaders, and they had the responsibility to show the people their sin and rebellion, to call them to repentance and return to God. They knew the people were sinful. But when Jeremiah says, they healed the wound of my people lightly, it means they, they soft-pedaled their sin. They told them it wasn't that bad, and that they were at peace with God, and it wasn't true. And where did this leave the people? facing the judgment of God because they were told they had peace with God, and they didn't. Notice, too, that God didn't let the people off the hook because of the the priests. You can't claim ignorance uh, or that uh, I was was misled. Uh, Human beings are still responsible for their sin. And so that's why I say this is deadly. This is why the false gospel of health and wealth and happiness is so dangerous and insidious, right? It lies to folks. It doesn't even talk about their sin. It tells people, Christ died on the cross because they're great. Because the people are great, and he loves them so much. So he died for them on the cross. He wants them to have money, and everything will go awesome in life. It'll be great. No mention of sin. this This is what Jeremiah said. They healed the wound of my people lightly. And it's, it's a terrible thing. It brings about a false peace. 
Um, but what is the problem with this? This saying, this it's saying peace, peace when there is none. Paul tells us the outcome of this in in First Thessalonians five three. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So this is where those priests and teachers are, and even today in our day, false teachers are leaving people in this path, leaving, setting people up for destruction. Because which one of us knows when Christ will return? We don't know. None of us. We have to live like it could be any moment because when it does, it will be too late for those who've been lulled into a, a false sense of peace. And that passage says that the day of the Lord will come suddenly. It will bring about destruction on those who are not at peace with him through Christ. Paul describes it as coming on like labor pains uh, in a pregnant woman, fast. You've got to think about what that is. It comes on fast, right, without warning, and it's inevitable. You cannot escape it, and it comes with pain. And that's, those are the language he uses to describe how this is going to happen. And so if a pastor or a church leader never tells you about your sin and calls you to repent and trust in Christ, they're a false pastor. They're not a pastor. They don't care about the people. Why would then, we have to, that makes us ask the question, why would a pastor say, peace, peace, when there is none? What, what could possibly be the motivation for that? Okay, wants more people to come listen. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, those two go together, right? You're, if it's money, fame, it's, it's wanting to be liked by the world, liked by culture, so I don't want to say the hard things because if I sit here and say, you guys are all sinners, you need a Savior, you need to repent of your sin, you need Christ. Who wants to come and hear that? <laughs> I do, other than Christians. He himself doesn't know or believe the gospel. He's made it something else, often about money, being popular, being liked. And let's be honest, in our culture, it's getting harder and harder for Christians to stand on biblical truth because your stance on biblical truth is going to increasingly conflict with the world. And, and when I say that, I mean education and media and politics, all of it. The, the, the way things are going, more and more, and it's to be expected. I'm not saying this so that we can get all afraid, right? It's coming, it's going to happen, but we have peace with Christ. We don't fret, we don't worry about it, we trust God with it, but there is a test. Pastors that don't can't withstand the scrutiny or the... Um, 
pushback from culture when they talk about the Bible and, and speak biblical truth, they got a decision to make. Am I going to stand on the word of God or am I going to bend to the culture? And so we're going to see this happening more and more. And you'll see churches crumbling because of it. And you'll see some churches uh, growing exponentially because of it. Because like Jan said, they're, they're trying to bring more people in. You know, it brings more money. So when you say a bunch of things that make people feel good about themselves, what do we want to hear? We want to hear that I, I'm, I'm a good guy. I deserve a lot of things. So when I go to a place and a guy tells me that every time, I'm like, I'm coming back there. And this is what life's about. If I just come here and listen to this, things are going to go great. I want to hear that. I don't want to go somewhere and hear somebody telling me that I'm a sinner. So this, this is going to be, it's always been a battleground for the church. I mean, that's why we have the things written in Scripture, so many things about false teachers, because it's always been there. This desire to not preach the truth, because the world hates it. And Jesus said, the world will hate you. So, and this works the same for you and I. When we falsely, we may falsely tell people that they're okay or they're at peace with God, we're actually despising them. Uh, we're setting them up for destruction. We have to be honest with people about their sin so they can come to repentance and faith in Christ. By the, the knowledge of sin, the fact that people are sinners and being confronted with that, is a vital part of the gospel. You can't leave it out. Not only will they not have eternal peace with God through the forgiveness of sins, they will not experience the ongoing production of the fruit of peace by the Holy Spirit of God in their lives, which you and I as Christians have experienced both. And so, what can sinners apart from Christ expect in this, in this life and the life to come? Isaiah 57 20 and 21 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace. Life comes at the believer and the unbeliever alike. Okay, we, we do not have to be left uh, in that place of tossing and, and no quiet and mire and dirt. People don't have to be left there. They can have the peace of God through the Holy Spirit through repentance and faith in Christ. A deeper inner peace of mind, knowing God is in control and he loves us and he saved us. We are right with him. Everything happening in our lives has purpose and he will never leave us or forsake us. And his grace is sufficient for us in our trials. We have so many passages of scripture that we could go to that are meant to and do give us peace because it gives us knowledge about God. Uh, we saw what Isaiah said, the wicked can expect, but what about those who trust in the Lord? Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This is what we learn about God. We can trust him, set our minds on him. We learn here that the Lord God is an everlasting rock security for those who keep their minds planted firmly in trusting him. He says he will keep this person in perfect peace. 
That's um, Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. As Christians, we have peace with God through Christ because he atoned for our sins on the cross and gave us his righteousness through faith. And look with me, we're, we're done here, here in a second. Look with me at John 14, if you would. John 14, starting at verse 22, go through verse 27. And this is Jesus speaking with uh, his disciples. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's amazing that Jesus Peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is peace that is not about getting along with other people, but an inner peace about eternity, the fact that Jesus is still with us in spirit. Christ said we'll have trouble in this life, but he's overcome the world. And this is all meant to give us peace through the Holy Spirit. The peace that Paul is talking about here is personal. And yes, every Christian benefits from the production of this peace in their lives, um, but it is also personal. Not in the sense that one Christian has a different kind of peace than another, but that we can encourage one another in this truth. Because we all have it, we all experience it. Sometimes we are wavering, we're forgetting. We need to remind each other. We need to bring each other back to the truth. So, but, so, but I want you to see the connection between the difficulties in your life and the production of peace and joy from the Holy Spirit. There's absolutely a connection to these. And it's amazing how God has planned to teach us about himself and how he does so. There's a lot of sanding going on in our lives. And it takes longer for some of us. Some of us need a coarser sandpaper, right? But let's not resent him for it. Let's trust him and ask him for peace because he is God. And, right. <clears throat> right. Yeah, that's the only explanation for It's but
right? Right. Absolutely. And the the more mature believers we are, the more fruit of the spirit we should be producing. Not because we had a couple hard things happen a while back. We learned everything. Probably because there's going to be more and more hard things in our lives, but the spirit of God keeps manifesting this in our lives and we're more and more convinced, we're more and more um solid and anchored in that truth and people will begin to see it. Um I wanted to end with this one story I thought was really interesting. Um, that in 1653, Bulstrode Whitlock was embarking as Cromwell's ambassador for Sweden. He was much disturbed in his mind as he rested on the preceding night while he reflected on the state of Great Britain. It happened that a confidential servant slept in an adjacent bed who, finding that his master could not sleep, said, Pray, sir, will you give me leave to ask you a question? Whitlock replied, Certainly. The servant continued, Pray, sir, don't you think God governed the world very well before you came into it? Whitlock answered, undoubtedly. And pray, sir, don't you think that he will govern it quite well when you are gone out of it? Again, Whitlock answered, certainly. Then, sir, pray excuse me, but don't you think you may as well trust him to govern it as long as you're in it? Right. And to this question, Whitlock had nothing to reply but turned about, soon fell asleep, and never awoke till he was summoned to embark. Sometimes we need to be reminded. Right? We need to be reminded that God is sovereign, that God is in control. He has promised us a lot of things, and they're not lightweight promises, and he will keep all of them. We need to be reminded that we have that ultimate peace. If we're a Christian, we have that ultimate peace with Christ through his death and resurrection, through repentance and faith in him as our Savior, brings us ultimate peace, and then we know and we believe as Christians because we can read it in his word as we study it, grow in knowledge of it, that he is producing in me a peace that I can't explain and that I don't need to be in fear or anxiety in, in the trials of life. I can trust him, that he is doing this part of the good work that he's doing in me, and he will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, again for tonight. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, God, for ultimate peace through salvation in Jesus Christ. And thank you, Father, for your promised Holy Spirit that indwells each believer that is producing in us this kind of peace, Lord, that we can't explain. When the absolute most difficult things in life hit us, not different than what the unbelieving world gets, Lord, but, but we can respond differently because we know the truth, we have the truth, have the Spirit of God producing in us what we need to live this life as we wait for our Savior's return, as we want to grow in, in Christ-likeness, and we thank you for doing that, Lord, through sanctification. Help us, Lord, not to set aside your word. Help us to study it. Help us to realize that knowing you more produces this more. Help us to read it, believe it, and trust it. You are God Almighty. You are absolutely trustworthy. Thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who 
does not know you as Savior, and they don't have that ultimate peace, Lord, that you would open their hearts and their minds to see the sinful nature of their lives, that they need to repent, turn from their sin, turn to you, Lord. Trust in Christ, his righteousness, his death, and his resurrection. For be their Savior, Lord, that he atoned for their sins on the cross. Pray that you will make that change in them tonight through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness, mercy, mercy, and that we, Lord, have such a great peace in our lives. Help us to go about, Lord, with smiles on our faces, not because everything's great, but because we trust you and you give us joy and peace. You love us so much. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, I won't be here next week. Somebody else will be covering next week. Um, I have some training to go to, so, but we'll still have meeting next week, so don't skip it. <laughs>